Well, hey there. Uh, my name is Nick Clayson, and this is my wife, Amanda. And uh, most of you may at least know us by face, but we wanted to tell you a little bit about what has been going on uh, in our in our lives and in our hearts over the last couple of months. So um, July 19th, we had our second son, which was great. His name is Jude. And they said that he, on his infant screen, had flagged for an incredibly rare um, and incredibly uh, dangerous, basically, uh, genetic neurological disease. Um, one that, uh, if he got diagnosed with the infant version of it, he wouldn't make it past two years old. And so, if you can imagine getting hit with this news, um, we were stunned. We had no idea how to respond, what to do. Um, we just, we kind of sat there, you know, in the hospital room. And, you know, a lot of times when doctors come and stuff, they give a lot of hope. And they're like, you know, there's this, there's that. Like, there was nothing. As we were waiting, um, right after, after the doctor left, I think we just kind of looked at each other and the first thing that came to our minds was we need to pray. Um, I feel like I've received um, texts and things from people saying all I can do is pray, but you know, thankfully we know that that's the most important thing and that is, um, that is our first defense. So that's what we did. Thankfully, uh, the test results came back five days later and um, they were negative for the infantile version of this disease. And so we were ecstatic. They said everything was fine. We could go home the next day and that was it. It was over, the trial was done and we thought God is good. We made it, let's go home. Um, and then the next day we got home, we got settled. We finally felt like we were getting into a groove as a family. And I received a call from the genetic physician at Dayton Children's who was taking care of Jude's case and he said that um, though he came back positive or negative for the infantile version of crab A disease, he did not come back negative for the child or adult onset. So that meant that the neurological decline resulting in death would just start after two years old instead of before. So we're just gonna, we're gonna start over. So we hit our knees again and we prayed even more desperately again just that these results, these second set of results, um, would also come back negative. So we waited, and um, after another week, the test came back, and a physician called us and told us that she was 99.8% certain that she would never develop this disease, and that we were out of the woods, so to speak, and things were going to be fine. Um, so we were so relieved, and we were thankful, and we were praising God ten times over just for His, his faithfulness, it. I think it's natural. I think it's um, in our culture to try and move towards independence. You know, as a youth pastor, we're pushing uh, students out towards independence. But as we do that, I think sometimes spiritually, we want to be more independent and, and call on God only in the hard times or only uh, when it's convenient for us. But instead, what I think this trial has taught both of us is just to move from a place of independence uh, even, even like I don't know if we perceived how independent we felt we were, but in that moment, uh, we realized how, you know, how many times we lacked dependence on God. So moving from independence to dependence, and I'll just challenge you: if if you're facing something like that, um, it's worth it. It's better, um, and find a way to to be dependent upon Him 
and stop leaning on your own understanding and your own ways and your own thoughts. Instead, uh, run to Him and, and just find a way to be desperate for Him because He's the author and the perfecter of our life and our faith, and He's totally in control. And as much control as we think we have, we don't have it. God has it. So uh, find a way to give it to Him. Find a way to be uh, more dependent upon Him. It's worth it. Well, can you give God praise this morning for this wonderful testimony? As a staff, we were invited into this prayer circle rather early on as they dealt with this privately, and it was just amazing to watch Nick and Amanda that their first, first reaction, their first move was to get onto their knees and to beg us to get on our knees with them, and so it was an incredible privilege to pray alongside them through this. Uh, what's not told in this uh, video, and I asked their permission to share this, is that they've received subsequent phone calls, and they're just not quite out of the woods. The doctors just won't give them that, um, that, that, that assurance that uh, there's not problems here, and so they still live with this nagging fear uh, in the back of their mind that perhaps, just perhaps, something is still possible. And so continue to pray for them, but so grateful, so proud to uh, call them brothers and sisters in Christ and to have the honor uh, to come alongside them in, in this journey. Well, there's no real good way to transition from that touching testimony to the stupid story I'm about to tell you, so I'll just dive right in. Uh, I'll tell you a story about a dumb raccoon. So at our house, we deal with raccoons, and uh, they love getting on our roof. We have wood siding, and so they climb up on our roof, and about once a week, Shannon tells me, Chris, you have to go, there, there's a party on the, on the roof, you have to go scare off the raccoons. And so uh, it was about two years ago, Taylor comes running into my room one evening, and she says, Dad, there, there's a raccoon that's trying to get in our back door. And so I went back, and sure enough, at our back screen door, here's this raccoon trying desperately to get in. It's clawing at the screen. And so I open up the, the glass slider, and I kind of kick at it. I act real brave um, with my daughter between us. And uh, it, it, didn't give, it didn't back up at all. It, it didn't go anywhere. In fact, it just uh, became more and more resolved to get in the house. And so I slammed the door shut, and it went to another door. And, and then it came back, and it went on for several hours, in fact, the whole evening. The next day, it tries to get in the front door. And so this time, I, uh, a little more brave, I go out with a baseball bat and uh, a heavy flashlight, and I'm going to scare this thing off. And, and before uh, the incident was over, I was standing on top of the railing of the deck, uh, yelling for Shannon to come save me, because this uh, raccoon was on its back legs, literally swiping at me, uh, trying to get in our house. And so we finally, we just came to the conclusion that this thing was crazy, that it had rabies, that it didn't know what was going on. Uh, I was so desperate to get in. And so we went and set a trap for it that night. I went to UDF. Who knew that UDF carried canned salmon? Uh, if you ever need to catch a raccoon, you can go to UDF to get some food. And uh, sure enough, within about 15 or 20 minutes, we caught this uh, stupid raccoon. In fact, I have a picture of it here. Yeah, you can see it. It, it, uh, it threw poop all over everything on that deck. It was all over our doors. And you still couldn't get near that cage. And so I had to finally put a blanket over that uh, cage. Pastor Brad's smiling because he remembers part of the story. He was there when we had to dispose of it. In fact, in the state of Ohio, if you catch a wild animal, you can't release it. You have to dispose of it. And so that's a whole other story for a whole other day. But even as I carried that cage off to get rid of that raccoon, it was desperately trying to get out, desperately trying to get in our house. So I thought the story, that was the end of the story. <clears throat> Later that afternoon, I was actually home studying that day. And um, I hear what sounds like a, a cricket on steroids. It was just this loud chirping. Uh, I'd never quite heard the sound before. And so I remember walking through every room in the house trying to find this cricket. And I couldn't find it upstairs. And finally I determined that it was coming from downstairs. And so I went down in the basement and I searched all around. And after about 10 minutes, I found a baby raccoon that was making this noise, crying for its mother, apparently, hiding underneath our steps. 
Uh, apparently what had happened is in their, uh, the fun little party they were having on our roof, they liked to go up and sit on top of our chimney. And apparently this baby had fallen all the way down the flue to the basement where there's a clean out. And, and we have some regs shoved, shoved in there. Uh, but apparently this raccoon was able to get past those regs. And the mother could hear the cries of this baby and was desperate to get into our house. So desperate that she even ended up giving her life over trying to get in our house. Silly story. But to paint the picture this morning of desperation. Now there's desperation all throughout the Bible painted all. Uh, the picture of desperation is painted often in scripture, never with a raccoon. So that was just uh, me this morning. But all throughout scripture, the Old Testament, the New Testament. We can start back in Genesis chapter 22 where we see uh, Abraham is nearly, uh, is desperate because God has asked him to sacrifice his son Isaac. Then later in Exodus chapter 14, we see the children of Israel uh, that are uh, fleeing from Pharaoh. And Pharaoh changes his mind and he chases them and pins them against the Red Sea. And they were a desperate people, desperate for God's intervention. 1 Samuel chapter 21, we see a, a desperate David. He's still uh, a shepherd at that point, uh, And uh, the crazy king Saul is after him and he's desperate for God's protection. We see a, a, a lesser known story in 2 Kings chapter 19. We see uh, Hezekiah reading a threatening letter from the king of Assyria. This would be like us getting a personalized letter from ISIS. And he was freaked out and he was desperate. Then we see in the New Testament, we see some uh, pictures painted of desperation as well. We saw, uh, we've seen before in, uh, I think it's Matthew chapter 14, we see Peter walking on water, uh, total trust in Jesus. He takes his eyes off of Jesus and begins to sink below the waves in a moment of desperation. We saw in Mark chapter 10, we saw the, uh, the paralyzed man, or no, was it the blind man, who's beside the road, and he hears Jesus coming by, and he cries out in desperation, Jesus, have mercy on me. We see the desperate mother a few chapters earlier in Mark chapter 7, the desperate mother that confronts Jesus, desperate for him to heal his, her daughter that was demon-possessed. We even see Jesus tell some of his parables. He paints this picture of desperation. In Luke chapter 18, he paints the picture of desperation through this widow who goes back and forth to this ungodly, unjust judge over and over, persistently desperate for justice. We see in Luke chapter 11, we see uh, desperation that looks like the persistent friend at midnight that goes to his neighbor's house and knocks on the door, desperate to meet the needs of his guests. The storyline of the entire Bible is that of desperation of people who cry out to God in need. It's the basis of the gospel. Sinful people cry out to Jesus to be saved from their sins. And that should be just the beginning of it. Desperation, which is crying out to God in need, is central to this idea of what it means to be a Christian. And then something happens along the way and we kind of drift away from our desperation. We drift away from uh, this need, uh, this desperate crisis need for a Savior. And so this morning, we want to propose to you that we all need a healthy dose of spiritual desperation. And so we're not going to talk as much about desperation this morning as we are going to talk about the barrier of desperation or the problem of desperation. And that this morning is self-sufficiency. It's self-sufficiency that comes between us and gets in the way of our desperate need for Christ. I don't know about you, but I tend to drift away from dis desperation in my life, okay? Desperation is something that I want to uh, head away from, that I want to I go on my own. And, and what happens in my life is that my pride combined with my self-sufficiency, they wage war on what it means to be desperate for God. In fact, the iconic image in the American westernized culture is this image of the self-made man. And I've said this before, uh, it's, we say in America that he pulled himself up by his bootstraps. 
So I don't, I don't know what that means. I don't know what a bootstrap is, uh, but I know that people are doing it all around us. And essentially, if you want something badly enough, if you're willing to work hard enough for it, that you can make your dreams a reality. As a result, we tend to drift away from desperation and we begin to drift towards this idea of self-sufficiency where we say, I can do it myself and I don't need anyone's help. And so what's crazy about this idea of desperation, instead of being something that we crave for, we insulate ourselves from it. We protect ourselves against it and ultimately we only experience it in moments of crisis when something bad happens to us. So it goes like this, I know I need God, but my desperation awareness has waned, and uh, quite honestly, I'm able to solve my own problems. Quite honestly, I'm able to strategize my way out of these issues, and I'm honestly just able to take care of it myself. And then boom, a crisis hits. And now God has our attention. In between services, uh, several people came up to me and told me about a crisis that's going on in their lives. And now I need his help, and now I'm desperate And the testimony over and over from people from the first service was that, look what God did, these amazing things that he did in my life once I desperately came to him in need. And so the question this morning is, how do we embrace this spirit of desperation? See, Nick and Amanda didn't wake up one morning and say, you know what, we're kind of short on crisis in our life. So God, could you, you know, we're, we're pregnant, we're ready to have this baby, and so why don't you bring a crisis into our life so we can be more desperate for you? See, that's probably not a good application to stand up here this morning and and teach to pray like that because it's probably not going to happen. But how can we cry out to God? How can we say, God, I want you. God, I need you. How can we fuel a desperation that makes us more dependent on Christ? How can we fuel a desperation that strengthens and deepens our spiritual roots? How do we fuel a desperation that drives us to look more and more like Jesus every day? And the truth of this is that unless we understand the issue or the problem of self-sufficiency, we'll never be desperate enough to navigate ourselves towards dependency on Christ. And so in order to understand this problem of self-sufficiency, we have to start with a basic understanding of what's going on inside me. What's the nature of the problem inside of me? And so we've chosen this morning to look at James chapter 4, because quite frankly, I think it's one of the best, one of the clearest texts one that's been preached here before several times, uh, a text that peels back the layers, the very basic layers of our lives to help us see um, what's going on inside the human heart. In a moment, I'm going to share with you a, a number of layers that exist, I think, in the heart of every human being. The Bible says that this morning. And so you need to know that James chapter 4 is not specifically addressing uh, self-sufficiency. It's not specifically uh, addressing desperation, although we're going to see those things in the text. The reason that James is addressing uh, the church is that there were problems in the life of his church. And so in verse uh, 1 of chapter 4, he says, what in the world, why are all these quarrels and these fights going on among you? See, there were difficulties and there were issues and there were challenges that were happening right in the context of his own church. And so he's trying to answer this basic question of when this happens... Here's what's going on inside of us. And so let's pick up the text to see uh, how these difficulties, how these challenges drive us to react. James chapter 4, verse 1, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 
Or do you suppose it is with no purpose that Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us? And then the tone begins to change here in verse 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Verse 10, humble yourselves in the Lord, before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So James is addressing in this passage some common issues that every Christian and every church at some point or another is facing. In other words, there's some basic problems or some barriers that are historic, even systemic to our humanity. And so he highlights five problems this morning. I want to think of them as warning signs. And so these are warning signs of a heart that leans towards self-sufficiency. So the first one, the first warning sign is this me, myself, and I mentality. The problem within each of us is our self-centered passions. Look at verse 1. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? The, the key word in this text here is passion. In the original Greek language, it was the word hedone, which is where we derive our word hedonist. And it literally means someone who's self-centered, someone who's pleasure-seeking. The word in the New Testament consistently has a negative application. And here in this passage, James is saying, listen, the external problems that are taking place are really just an overflow. These things that are happening, they're not the problem. They're an overflow of a problem that's taking place inside our heart. These self-centered passions are really um, what it's all about. This me, myself, and I mentality. And so essentially when you peel back the most basic layer of what it means to be human, there's a love for oneself that lies at the heart, the, the human heart. It lies at the core of the human heart. There's this we love ourselves mentality. The very base of who we are, James says, the problem is self-love. And so that's the first warning sign. Look at the second warning sign. We see it in the first part of verse 2. He says that this self-love expresses itself in ungodly or selfish desires. He says, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. Now, Nobody here has probably murdered anybody, but he's using hyperbole to make his point. He says, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So what happens is this, self, this self-centered love that's baked into who we are as human beings, it expresses itself in these strong desires that are often uh, frustrated. And so look at the progression here. We want what we want, and when we can't have what we want, we do and we say crazy things to lay a hold of what we can't have otherwise. We say outrageous things, we do outrageous things, because in our heart there's this cauldron of these burning desires and these wrong desires that are conflicting us. And so these quarrels, these conflicts come from selfish or ungodly desires. Look at uh, warning sign number three. I'm going to call this this morning self-reliance. The text says this problem of self-reliance actually manifests itself in prayerless living. Look at the second half of verse two. You do not have because you do not ask. This one hit me hard this week. A significant problem of a selfish desire is a lack of prayer. See, self-centered people who are filled with selfishness, um, their lives are marked by prayerlessness. And so for some of us that don't have strong prayer lives, it's not that we need to learn or better understand the theology of prayer. It's not that we need to learn how to pray. It's not even that we need to learn to set time aside to pray. Uh, The most basic uh, problem here with our prayer life is the fact that we're selfish and we think that we can do it by ourselves. And so we're not desperate and we're not dependent. 
because we think we can handle it ourselves. Uh, James said a little earlier in chapter 1, uh, verse 5, he says, listen, uh, if anyone lacks wisdom, he can ask of God who gives it freely. So who doesn't want free wisdom, right? But the problem is, is that when we encounter a problem, our first move, our first uh, prayer is not to go to Christ and, and ask for wisdom. And it's just an overflow of a prayerless life. It's an overflow of our self-reliance. And then James goes on to say, uh, warning sign number four, he says that, listen, uh, we don't pray, but when we do pray, our prayers are infected with brokenness. Look at verse three. He says, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. In other words, when we do pray, we pray selfishly and with the wrong motives. This is, sound like the parable I'd mentioned earlier in Luke chapter 18. And Jesus is telling this parable about this, this widow that's going back and forth to this judge over and over and over out of desperation seeking justice. And finally, the judge throws up his hands and says, fine, you can have whatever you're asking for if you just go away. And then Jesus ends this parable by describing this Pharisee, he says, as someone who trusts in themselves and treats others with contempt. We don't have time to explore this whole text, but listen to the self-righteous prayer of this Pharisee immediately following uh, this parable that Jesus just told. In Luke chapter 18, verse 11 and 12, the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. He said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, like these extortioners and these unjust people, these adulterers, even like this poor tax collector here. I fast, I, uh, twice a week I give tithes of all that I get. This is awful. Uh, the Pharisee standing up in front of everybody and saying, God, thank you for making me better than everyone else. The perfect example of infected prayers. Listen, church, we have to be careful, even fearful, of prayers that sound religious, of prayers that sound spiritual, but are really just a gross expression of a, of a proud and covetous heart. If you're listening right now, punch your neighbor and tell him to wake up. Because this is a little depressing so far, okay? And there's still one more to go, but just hang with me here for a second because we're going to turn the corner and get to the good news. Now, the fifth warning sign, some of you are going to hate this because you've grown up in a conservative background and you hate the word worldliness. But this is the, the fifth warning sign. James concludes with some really strong language. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us? So the idea here is this. Not only is something uh, wrong that's going on inside of our hearts, so we have these selfish uh, passions, these evil desires that manifest themselves in a messed up prayer life. But there's also something going on in culture around us that drags us towards self-sufficiency. Now, some well-intentioned people have tried to interpret this passage by giving us a legalistic thing, a list of worldly things to stay away from. When I was younger, it was uh, don't smoke, don't drink, don't dance, don't go to movies, don't listen to rock and roll, and God forbid, don't get a tattoo. That was just about the worst thing that you could do back then. Um, but I don't think that's what James is actually saying here. He's actually cautioning us that the entire system in which we live is characterized by self-oriented, self-trusted living. And as Christians, we're guilty of having adopted the world's value system. We're so busy patting ourselves on our backs for having pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps that we quench the spirit that God made come live in us in the first place. So we have all these warning signs this morning. 
And do any of these resonate with you? Do, like, do you see any of these in the cultural air that you breathe? As we explore and as we understand Hebrews chapter 4.12, we say this often, that we're to take Scripture and use it as a mirror to hold up into our lives and take inventory of what's going on inside our hearts. And so as you take inventory this morning, uh, is God preaching to you? Because he did this week to me. Do you have self-centered passions? Do you have selfish desires? Is your, mark, is your life marked by prayerless living? Uh, do you have infected or selfish prayers? Do you have a worldly value system? Listen, the point of the text this morning is to w- raise an awareness level of how much self-focus and self-sufficiency has become a part of the typical way in which we operate. And so understanding this part of the battle is an essential, pa- essential part of moving in the path forward towards dependency. And so fortunately, there's more to this text than just a list of problems. Praise God that in verse 6, the passage turns the corner and uh, we no longer have to be depressed anymore. Listen, have you ever known somebody, maybe you're sitting beside somebody this morning that always has all the problems, can point out all the problems in your life, but offers, never offers a solution, has no solutions to give you. That's not what James is doing here this morning. He moves from the deep surgery that's in these first uh, five verses to this beautiful promise that's at the heart of how we overcome this self-sufficiency barrier. Here's how it happens. We look to God for the grace that we need. The first step is realizing that I have a problem. The second step is turning to him for the solution to our problem, which is grace. Look at verse 6. But he gives more grace. The point of this phrase is critically important. Because it shows that there's an antidote for everything that we just talked about. So this disappointing, this grievous self-centeredness, it has a remedy. Listen, we're not without hope. There is a divinely given path. This is not a new passage that's been preached here at Liberty Heights Church. Four years ago today, we actually, uh, Pastor Brad taught from the same passage. Same passage, a little different of an application. But maybe for you this morning, this is the first time that you've come to fully understand what's going on inside of you. Maybe you've blamed the circumstances of your life on people and things around you. But the text this morning is saying, listen, there's another layer that we have to deal with. And the great news is that there's a solution in verse 6, but he gives more grace. Listen, you need to know that there's no other religious system of thought or, or anything that's written down religiously, past or present, that contains an emphasis on, of divine grace like the Bible does. This grace only comes to us through relationship with Jesus Christ. A couple weeks ago, is, or, or actually last year, as part of our uh, Sunday morning memory verse challenge, we memorized uh, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the bad news. But the good news, we have to tag 20, verse 24 on behind it. It says those people that have fallen short of the glory of God are justified by his grace as a gift to the redemption that's in grace, Christ Jesus. Now this word grace has become very familiar with us as we've preached about it the last couple weeks and actually the last couple years we've taught on grace and sometimes uh, a word can lose its meaning due to its commonality. And so let's back up for just a second. The word grace can mean favor, kindness of God, the forgiveness of God. I wrote this definition down this week. Uh, It says uh, grace is the power or the ability to be pleasing to God. In Christ, God graces us with forgiveness. He poured out our judgment on Jesus so that we could be treated with mercy. And so last week, we defined that as justifying grace or saving grace. But that grace doesn't stop there. See, the wonderful hope of the gospel is that God gives us grace to fill in all the gaps. 
And we see this over and over and over in Scripture. We've said this uh, many times. I've, uh, I've, I've referenced 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul has this impossible problem. It's a thorn in his flesh. And he begs God uh, to remove it. And God says no. And through Jesus, he hears these words, my grace is sufficient for you. Not my saving grace, but my sustaining grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made known, it's manifest through your weakness, Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We taught a couple years back through uh, 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 5. Peter's writing to the church that's being persecuted. They're, they're, they're walking through persecution unlike we, we have ever seen in history. And the church is tired and they're worn down and they're discouraged. And so he's writing them a letter, perhaps even from prison, before he himself is martyred for his faith. And he, and he writes this to them in 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 10. He says, after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. So he's already called you, he's already justified you, but now this God of grace will restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you. Earlier in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, the church at Corinth is uh, worried about this gap that's going to appear in their giving because Paul is driving them so hard to give above their means. And they're like, it doesn't make sense. We're giving this all away. And Paul gives them this promise. He says, God is able to make all grace abound in you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, in other words, God's going to meet all your needs through grace, that you may abound in every good work. And so even in the midst of this gap, that God's grace is going to come and help you not only to survive but to thrive in his kingdom. But I don't know what the future holds. But he gives more grace. I'm so disappointed with my life right now. But he gives more grace. I don't know how to reach my kids' hearts. But he gives more grace. I'm not sure I want to live anymore. But he gives more grace. I've blown it again. I'm so ashamed. But he gives more grace. Listen, desperation is not always living in crisis mode. Rather, it's believing that the biggest crisis would be trying to live without God's grace in our lives. So if this is true, and I believe that it is, then how should we respond? How should we leave? James doesn't leave us wandering. In the last couple of verses, verses 7 through 10, we get a clear uh, picture of what our response, maybe a better word, what our posture needs to be. And so whether or not you're under the weight of crisis that has awakened you to your self-sufficiency, or maybe you're under conviction from having seen a concerning pattern in your lives, here are six steps of repentance you can take. In verse 7, simply submit to God. First posture is simply acknowledging God's rightful place in your life. Uh, to say it another way, stop resisting. In the church, the specific situation is there's this conflict which is coming about from this desire of them wanting things. And James seems to ask them, have you ever stopped to consider what God wants? Embrace a posture of a willing heart under his rule. I wrote this down from a sermon that I listened to this week. Uh, the pastor said, self-sufficiency not only cuts us off from God's grace as God allows us to go on our own way, but it also puts us in a position where we're acting like we are God. And so we submit to God, verse 7, also in verse 7, resist the devil. 
Like begin to acknowledge and recognize and understand that we are in a spiritual battle. So the prince of, of this age uh, does not love God like we love God. And he does not want us to become dependent on God. And so he's doing everything in his power to confuse us and to, to make us think that we're self-sufficient. That we can do it ourselves. That we don't have any need of God. And so this morning we have to realize that we're in a battle and we resist him by submitting to God. And then in verse 8, verse 8 says, draw near to God. As you explore this, uh, the way these words are used in the original text, it actually has an Old Testament uh, context of worship. And prayer, worship, reading of the scriptures are all part of the context here. And so central to this idea of stepping away from our self-sufficiency is a regular reminder of what God is like. And so we do that here by corporately gathering together to remind each other, to draw near together, uh, near, near to God together. There's an alarming stat that's taking place in the church, the evangelical church in the United States. Five, six, seven years ago, um, a regular attender of church was defined by somebody that went to church about three times a month. So three out of four Sundays a month uh, made you a regular attender. Now we fast forward five, six, seven years in the evangelical church in America. The stats say that the regular attenders attend church about one and a half times a month. And we're missing out on this opportunity to draw near to God. Are we legalistically saying that you have to come to church, that that's the only way to draw near to God? No, absolutely not. But it's one of the best ways that I can think of. When we went to Mexico a few weeks ago, uh, the pastors down there are discouraged and they're tired and they're struggling because uh, the, the people are so desperate to, to draw near to God that they're demanding that their pastors uh, lead church on Monday and on Tuesday and on Wednesday and on Thursday and Friday. And finally the pastor's like, we have to have Saturday off. And they're developing a, a sermon every single day. And these pastors are also leading worship. And they're worn out from these people that are coming together to draw near to God. Because they understand the promise that as we draw near to him, he draws near to us. So that was verse 8. Also in verse 8, we see phrases like cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. And really this is a call to reflect on our lives. These, these activities, these uh, cleansing your hands, purifying your hearts, were all part of the context of meeting God in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, what he's saying, he's calling upon believers, James is, to reflect on what God has done for them. To confess their sins, to realize how far they're straying away from his purpose, from God's purpose. And so as you think back in the last few days and weeks and months, how much self-sufficiency do you see? Self-sufficiency grows in the soil of an unexamined, of a non-reflective life. And so we have to have a posture that pauses to reflect what God has done. And then verse 9, verse 9 is a little strange. Turns the table, James turns the table on our natural, natural penchant for laughing and lightheartedness and joking. And he calls us to lament. He says that we're to be wretched, which means that we're to express sorrow for what we've become. Now to mourn, to weep, to turn laughter and joy into mourning and gloom. Listen, it's not an encouragement for us to walk around depressed, but it's a moment for us to take to, to mourn how easily we've become what we've become and how easily we've allowed the sin of self-sufficiency to take over our lives. And so we lament verse 9 and then verse 10. Humble yourself. Humble yourself. This is the final step in our posture before God. Now, it's, uh, it's not just the last one, but it's really a summary of the whole text. See, self-sufficiency is a pride issue. 
And the hope in this passage is that those who acknowledge their need for God's help are the ones who God exalts. Listen, this is the upside-down logic of the Christian life. That Scripture teaches us that those that exalt themselves, that God will humble. And those that are humble themselves, God will exalt. And the greatest barrier to God's grace and the outpouring of his help is our belief in ourselves. And so that brings us to a challenge this morning. And this is a challenge that you've heard before. But it was 2009. Liberty Heights Church was in a time of crisis. The building was only five years old at this time. We had built the building five years earlier. And when we built the, year, uh, the building five years earlier, we were about the same size as we are now, about 1,000 people. And in those first five years of being in this building, we grew from 1,000 people to about 400 people, actually less than 400 people. And what's even more unthinkable is that those uh, less than 400 people were carrying a monthly mortgage of over $80,000 a month. You see, five years earlier, I think we had um, thought we found the secret sauce in playing church. And we projected that once we built our building, that within five years, we would grow to being uh, a church of 2,500 people. Because at the time, 2003, 2004, we were breaking attendance records, we were breaking giving records, life was good. And I wonder if just maybe we began to give ourselves a little too much credit for our success. I wonder if just maybe we were becoming a little too self-sufficient. And now five years later, we're without a pastor and we're in time of crisis. And I remember this because I was here. And those of you, as I look around this morning and I see you, I remember uh, us all coming together regularly and getting on our faces and crying out in desperation. We were without a pastor. We were wounded spiritually. And surely we were headed towards a sure foreclosure. But he gives more grace. In 2010, hired Pastor Brad, and he came and convinced us that we didn't need more money, we didn't need more people, we didn't even need this building. All we needed, and he said this, this is his words, all we needed was the Spirit of God and the Word of God. And it just turns out, uh, it just so happens that those are things are free, which is all we could afford at the time. And for eight years, we have clung to him desperately for guidance. We have depended on him literally to meet our daily needs for eight years. And then this past spring, we sold uh, nearly 60 acres of land that we've been trying to sell for over 12 years. And we took a huge chunk of this money and we threw it towards our debt. And for the first time since we moved into this building, uh, we are uh, spiritually healthy and we are financially healthy all at the same time. And we've said this a couple times. That's right, something to celebrate this morning. We've said this several times that um, we, we are finally on offense. We are no longer playing defense. And Pastor Brad and I started making a budget just this past week in preparation for the end of the year and then uh, getting ready to begin the budget process for next year. In fact, we start with uh, meetings, the first meeting this afternoon right after church. And the budget that we've put together is a good budget. And the first time in the history of this building, we're right-sized with our debt. We're nearly right-sized with our staffing needs. We're nearly right-sized with our ministry needs. Listen, God has been faithful when it didn't make sense on paper. And so why this message today? In fact, why, if you were here last week, um, two seemingly disconnected messages. Last week we talked about the next steps that we believe every believer and member of Liberty Heights Church should be taking. And then this week we're talking about desperation. Let me connect the dots for you. See, our vision statement and all of our ministry strategy is nothing more than a worthless piece of paper if God's people aren't taking next steps. 
We call this long obedience in the same direction where each day we faithfully put one foot forward in total trust and total obedience. This is a prescriptive approach to, to doing church and to building God's church through building God's kingdom through this church here at Liberty Heights. Now this week we're taking a little more of a preventative approach. And church, we are poised more than ever to make an impact in our community and make an impact in this, in this uh, entire world in the name of Jesus. But we are also poised more than ever for another fall from grace if we begin patting ourselves on our back for all the things that we've accomplished in the last eight years. And the danger is that we no longer are desperate for the Spirit of God and we're no longer desperate for the Word of God because we no longer feel the pressure that we've felt for the last eight years. There's a passage in 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 7. It's a very familiar verse. Many of you are familiar with it. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. A couple weeks ago, Pastor uh, Scott and I did a podcast on this that somehow we as Americans have taken this verse and turned it into a patriotic call to arms. The reality of it is that there was a specific promise made to a specific people at a specific point in time. But the principle behind this we can learn from this morning because the character of the God that said this thousands of years ago is the same character of the God that we worship today. And he is calling us, if my people, that's us, who are called by his name, we're Christ's followers, if we humble ourselves and pray then just like his promise thousands of years ago, he will come into our midst and he will do a, a mighty thing. He will do miraculous things that don't make sense on paper. And for eight years we humbled ourselves and we prayed because we were in crisis mode. We were desperate and that's why we prayed. But now we have to pray to remain desperate. Desperate for the spirit of God and desperate for the word of God. Listen, Liberty Heights Church, we have to be more dependent than ever and hungrier than ever for God's grace. And so today, if the circumstances of your life have made you realize that you can't make it on your own, be thankful. Use it. Use the brokenness of your life as a platform to reaffirm your trust in God's grace. Tell God that you need him this morning. If you try to find yourself in a position, or if you do find yourself in a position where you're consumed with anger, you're consumed with uh, anxiety, would you consider this morning that maybe, just maybe, self-sufficiency is the root of the problem? If you find yourself this morning with dry eyes, if you find yourself this morning with a cold heart, with a stubborn will, why not sever that pattern today? Resist the devil, submit to God, lament your sins, run to Jesus, because in doing so, you'll discover how true the promise really is, but he gives more grace. Would you bow with me this morning?